Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. When we think of Christmas, we typically turn to passages about the birth of Jesus. We like to hear about Mary and Joseph and the, and the shepherds and the wise men, and that's what we're typically used to. And though Hebrews 2 isn't a typical Christian Christmas, excuse me, Christmas passage, it helps us to answer three very important questions about Jesus. First, what he came to do. Second, how he accomplished it. And third, how we can participate. This Christmas, during the evening service, we are going to be looking at the three offices of Christ, that of prophet, priest, and king. And the Greek term, the Christ, or the Hebrew term, the Messiah, they mean the same thing. They mean the anointed one. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. Jesus is the Christ, or he is the Messiah, meaning the anointed one. In the Bible, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil upon their head as a sign that they were set apart for God's purposes. Now, the unique thing about Jesus is that he was the anointed one of all three offices. As prophet, he speaks God's word. As priest, he represents us or mankind to God. And as king, he rules sovereign over all as Lord. But Jesus isn't just another prophet. He's the one to whom all the prophets point. And Jesus isn't just another king. He's the king of all kings. And Jesus is not just another priest, but he is the supreme high priest who accomplishes once and for all what no other priest ever could. And so last week, Dr. Curitan spoke about Jesus as the promised prophet, the ultimate prophet. Next week, Reverend Collins will speak about Jesus as the king. And this week, we're going to look at Jesus as the merciful and faithful high priest. So turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18, and follow along as I read. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God shall stand forever. So the three questions that I want to look at is what did Jesus come to do, how did he accomplish it, and how can we participate? So first, what did he come to do? Well, Jesus came to do what no one else could. His goal was to retrieve treasure from the deepest pit 
and to recover it on a mission that no one else could ever accomplish. Follow along as I go back and read verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook partook of the same things. In Jesus, God became flesh and blood, verse 14. He partook of those things. God entered human history by becoming human. Now, why? Now, of course, no one can stare into the face of God any more than one can stare into the sun. Powerful camera filters have to be used to capture a picture of the sun. And likewise, to behold God's full glory, we need a powerful filter. And in Jesus, God clothed himself in flesh and blood so that we could behold the very face of God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, when we gaze upon Jesus, we see God's face his countenance, his holy character, his mighty power, his perfect beauty, his abundant mercy. Continuing with verse 14, Jesus himself likewise partook of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Again, this explains why Jesus came. Like a deep-sea diver seeking treasure from a shipwreck, Jesus' mission required that he descended into the deepest depths through the coldness and grime of this dark world where his treasure lay defiled by the corrosion of sin and death. And having descended to the very bottom, to Davy Jones' locker, as they say, There in the pit of death, he secured his treasure and he ascended, taking his treasure with him, the treasure he delivered from the dark world of sin and death. And that treasure was his people. In other words, his main purpose in coming down to earth was to be born in the flesh in order to uh, destroy the power of death and to deliver his people from death. Look at it in verse 14. Through death, he might destroy the one who has power over death, the devil, and deliver all those who are subject to lifelong slavery through death. Now, that's incredible, I know. Difficult to believe, but true nonetheless. And unlike other religious leaders, Jesus' death was not the outcome of forces beyond his control. No, from the beginning... Jesus' death was part of God's strategic plan. In Jesus' birth, God had begun his descent. He was born into poverty and he continued his descent through the painful betrayals and loss and suffering of this life. And at death, he completed his descent to the very bottom. And in verse 14, we see that Jesus was born human so that he could die human. He shared in flesh and blood so that he might walk in our shoes, experience the grief, loss, and pain that we experience, and even death. And through death, he might destroy the power of death. Now, like a vaccine that uses the active virus to defeat the virus, Jesus uses death to defeat death by destroying the one who has power over death. Through death, he came that he might destroy the one who had power over death, verse 14, the devil. And like a person who's been vaccinated, 
who no longer needs to live in fear. His people are delivered from all fear, fear of the devil, fear of death, and they are set free from lifelong slavery to fear. Now, we have to remember that he came for us. Lowly humanity, those made of dust, mere dust, were so precious to him. Verse 16 says, For surely it's not the angel he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus did not become human to save angels, those of a a higher and mightier order. No, he came to save us, homo sapiens, to save humanity, the humanity that had descended into the depths of sin, but who, like gold coins stamped with his divine image, we were his lost treasure. Now, from a cosmic perspective, I wonder if this confuses the spiritual world that he helps the offspring of Abraham, not the angels, the low-life humans? That's who he's come to save? And through Abraham and his offspring, he promised to bless not just a few humans, not just a nation, but to bless the rest of humanity. Now, what do Christians mean when we say that Jesus delivers us from the one who has the power of death, and the one who enslaves his people in the fear of death. Most of us have an overly simplistic view of death. We view death as merely the expiration of life, the date written on a tombstone. And while death certainly is final and irreversible, uh, an irreversible end of physical life, it's not merely that. God had warned Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day day in which they ate of it, he said, you will die. But Adam and Eve didn't die physically immediately. They lived for hundreds of years after that fated day. They had kids and they raised families. So is God exaggerating when he said, in the day you eat of it, you will die? Not at all. Because death is more than an immediate end to physical life. A missionary was once asked, how is that true? Because he had been explaining the story of Genesis 3, and the tribal chief accused him of lying, of God lying to Adam and Eve when he warned them, in the day you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will die. And he said to him, God lied because Adam and Eve didn't die that day. Well, the missionary walked over to the tool shed, took out a handsaw, and he walked over to the closest tree, and lopped off the largest branch he could. And he dragged it into the community of people and dropped it on the floor and pointed and said, dead or alive? And they all began to shake their heads and and whisper because they started to understand that even though it looked alive, even though it might still have fruit on it, it was dead. Just give it time in its dead estate would expose itself for what it is, for death cannot be concealed long. And in the same way, any human who is separated from God, cut off from him by sin, is no longer alive. They may not look dead. They may look look healthy and alive, but just give it time. And the true nature of death cannot be concealed long. The rot of death will eventually be revealed in broken relationships, a disintegrated psychology and physical death. But Jesus came to reverse the curse of death and to end it in every way by reconnecting his lost treasure 
to the source of life by reconciling man to God. That is what Jesus came to do, and he, he started it at the descent, at his birth. And he continued descending throughout his life until he completed his sin and reached the bottom, the, the darkest part in death, only to grab his treasure from the grave and return to the heights of heaven, taking his treasure with him, defeating death and ascending to the right hand of God where he rules on high on behalf of his people. So that is what Jesus accomplished. Now, how did he accomplish it? We've already mentioned something about his methodology in verse 16, the incarnation, God became man. But the next verse makes it more explicit. And it fleshes it out a little bit that not only did God become man, but Jesus became high priest. And the primary role of prophet, as we said, was to represent God to man, but that of priest is to represent man to God. So in verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order to represent us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, when we look at how Jesus accomplished his mission, the writer identifies two methods. First, Jesus' manner was, was legal. It was just. It was right, right? It met the law's demands. Jesus was a faithful high priest. But second, his approach was sympathetic and compelling. It also met the heart's demands. Jesus was a merciful high priest. So first, let's look at this. Jesus' approach was just, right, and true. Working on college campuses for 20 years, I got this question constantly. Why should we regard Jesus' death on the cross in a positive light? It betrays ridiculous, primitive beliefs of ancient gods demanding blood. It's rather barbaric. It's not enlightened. So the assumption goes, why couldn't God just forgive? Why do we need all the blood and the gore? And they, they view crucifixion, that, that, which is talked about here, verse 17, this making propitiation for the sins of the people, meaning you know, this intervention of turning away the wrath of God, is not only unnecessary but unenlightened. And, and ultimately an immature view. Now, with all due respect, that objection sounds really good in an ivory tower, and it even looks good on paper, but it's unworkable in the real world of betrayal and deep and abiding harm. To say that Jesus didn't have to die on a cross for God to forgive sins is what a person who has never had to forgive something substantial usually says. And so honestly, they don't know what they're talking about. And maybe it's because they've lived a charmed life. Maybe it's because they actually haven't thought through it all that carefully. Or it's possible they've just become disingenuously stubborn to win an argument. But the reality is, is if you've been deeply wounded and betrayed you know that forgiveness is necessarily costly. Real forgiveness is always costly because the debt is real and it must be dealt with. It must be paid and covered and justice demands that the perpetrator pay. Forgiveness demands that the victim cover it. And relief only comes when the debt is paid and fully covered. And now, 
when we're in that situation where we're dealing with a debt that someone has created against us, a wounding, a deep wounding, we have many ways to exact payment from other people, don't we? We can exact payment from showing them a cold shoulder to running down their reputation to going out of our way to make them suffer or to cough up some type of remittance. But we also know the sense, we have an intuitive sense of what forgiveness requires. And the larger the damage that's been done to us, the more difficult it is to forgive. Forgiveness means that we have to refuse giving them a cold shoulder. We have to move towards them. We have to We have to not run them down, but we have to protect their reputation. We need to cover the cost of whatever they damage rather than making them repay. And when you choose to forgive rather than exact a pound of flesh, it is hard. In fact, it's so hard, it feels like a death of sorts. It feels like a cross, because it is. But those who bear that cross, though it feels like death, know it's the only thing that leads to new life, and they're freed from the enslavement of bitterness. That's how forgiveness works, and we all know it, which is why we grow tired and frustrated by those who say, oh, just forgive, as if forgiveness is easy. And we won't trust ourselves or our hearts to such people who speak of forgiveness in such ways. And if we're wise, or we are wise, to be suspicious, because if we've been tested by life, if we've been tested by hardship, if we've been tested by others' betrayals and sins against us, and we lived a little bit of life experience, we know that forgiveness is hard. It requires sacrificial love. And if we know forgiveness is hard and costly, shouldn't a religion that is true to reality reflect that? So yes, Jesus' death on a cross was necessary. God had justly and rightly measured the cost of all human sin and betrayal, including your sin and my sin. And he weighed the debt in the balance. Justice demanded an accurate accounting, and justice demanded an accurate payment. But in forgiveness, instead of making us pay, God offers to pay the debt. And no real reconciliation can be sustained unless the debt is dealt with, unless it's covered and paid for. No reconciliation can be trusted until the debt's paid in full. Jesus' death on the cross paid that debt. He made propitiation for sin. He turned away God's wrath, and the resurrection validated that God the Father was satisfied and the payment was accepted. And so the method of Jesus' deliverance, of retrieving his treasured people from the depths of sin and the defilement of death, was right and true. It was legal. It didn't ignore the ugly truth. Rather, it met the demands of justice, and therefore it is trustworthy. Now, it's the only forgiveness that's fully trustworthy because it not only meets the demands of the mind and of justice, but it meets the demands of the heart. And the heart has its own demands, its need for sympathy and compassion and mercy. And look back at verse 17. See, Jesus is both the faithful high priest, he's just and true, and the merciful high priest, who's full of compassion and able to sympathize. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. 
See, our mind may admit that forgiveness is costly and that just payment must be made for sin, but ongoing life experiences often put such faith to the test. Our mind may accept the legal righteousness granted to us by God's forgiveness for us in Christ on the cross, but our heart can grow discouraged and exhausted by remaining sin or by the daily suffering of life in a broken world. And the soft-hearted person may notice a growing disparity between their gratitude for God's forgiveness and their success of resting, of re, I'm sorry, of resting in it and resisting future temptations. They might say, if I were truly grateful, I'd never sin again. I wouldn't struggle with this sin so much, or so the thinking goes. And a divided-hearted person or a faint-hearted person may, may notice a disparity between what their mind agrees with, that, that sin is ultimately inexcusable, and how their heart continues to wrestle with certain temptations. They might think, if only God showed more kindness by removing certain sinful proclivities, or, or if he would have shown more kindness when distributing natural gifts and abilities, I, I would not wrestle like I do and require so much forgiveness. And the brokenhearted may wrestle with other disparities. They might be able to distinguish between the shame caused by innocent suffering and the shame caused by guilty consequences. But, but if God just prevented cert, certain painful events and terrifying experiences in their life, they would not wrestle like they do with doubt and require so much forgiveness for it, for where their doubting and their angry thoughts take them. See, see, the mind needs objective truth, but the heart has its own needs, which cannot be resolved with objective truth alone. Objective truth must become personalized and lived out in sympathetic love, and this is where Christianity shines most brightly. Dorothy Sayers, a British novelist, said it this way, the incarnation means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death. He has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from a man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain, all for us, and he thought it well worth his while. See, the uniqueness of Christianity is the suffering of God Almighty, for only in Christianity does the Almighty become weak. Only in Christianity does the bulletproof God become pierceable. So how does this apply? It makes a difference when you know God has walked in your shoes, that he knows temptation and weakness. He knows the frustrations of life. He knows the pain of sickness, and he knows the smell of death. Objective truth is necessary. We need it, and it remains true no matter who says it or who declares it to us. But there's a world of difference when truth is communicated by, 
by one who's been through what you've been through. And as a sympathetic high priest, Jesus is able to offer mercy like no other because he's been where you have been. The one who challenges you with truth has, has proven it and lived it out in his own life. The one who represents you to the Father has taken his own medicine. His tenderness for you is great, for he knows the burden that you bear. Jesus accomplished his mission of deliverance for his people from sin and death, of retrieving his lost treasure and bringing it with him into the heavenly courts by being not only a faithful high priest, but a merciful high priest who meets the demands of the law and the demands of the heart. So how can you participate in what Jesus came to do? Well, you can receive it. Receive it as good news. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You can not get yourself ready for it other than to simply listen, receive it, and trust it. For Christmas is not about what humanity can do to create peace on earth and goodwill toward men. It's what Jesus has done to create peace on earth and goodwill toward men. He created peace on earth through forgiving all of your debt so that it changes your heart, melts your heart with grace, and gives you the resources you need to begin to forgive others who sinned against you. He creates peace in the heart by being the God who came near, who suffers with you and for you to end all suffering. And so you can trust yourself to him. Tim Keller said it this way, the Christian life begins not with high deeds and achievements, but with the most simple and ordinary act of humbly asking. Don't be put off by the simplicity of faith. Simply ask for the gift because it's already been given and it's yours for the taken. As the old Christian hymn declares, and we sang it this evening in Little Town of Bethlehem, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Behold a son given. God's greatest gift given for you. Will you open your heart? Will you receive him this Christmas? Whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, will you trust him and rest in him and him alone? He is always there for the taking. Trust yourself to him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Christmas. That Jesus is our great high priest who is faithful. He came in a way that was just and true. He paid for all of our sins so that we could be forgiven, so we could know the debt is paid and we can be reconciled to you. It shouldn't surprise us that he had to die on a cross. We know forgiveness is always costly. We couldn't trust any other kind. And so, Lord, we pray that we would trust the forgiveness that was won for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. But it's not just that he was a faithful high priest. He was a merciful one. One who became weak so that he could not just sympathize but empathize with what it means to be tempted 
what it means to suffer, what it means to be betrayed, what it means to have enduring loss. And so, Lord, we know that our Savior, He looks upon us with compassionate and merciful eyes. He longs for us to be restored. He's come in the smallest way so that we might not be intimidated as a baby to melt our hearts, to open our hearts so that we might receive this gift. Lord, I pray that we would receive it this, this evening, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time. We would open and treasure this gift and trust ourselves to Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.